And you did it incredibly. <laughs> you exceed our ability to even comprehend fully what love can be. The depth of your love for us is amazing. <laughs> we don't really know what to say because it doesn't feel like we deserve that love, but you've shown it to us anyway, and we appreciate that. We really do. We're humbled by it. I'm humbled by it. So Lord, as we come to this time of meditation, of communion, we, we remember your sacrifice, your body pierced in the cross, your blood that poured forth. We, we remember you and what you've done for us. And we also remember the grave couldn't contain you and that you conquered death and, and that your love is stronger than death. So we thank you for that, Jesus. And help us to carry that with us and not to take it lightly or forget about it, but to, to remember that you demonstrated love to the nth degree. So help us to demonstrate it too. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> the first time I heard this story, it was by Bob Russell at a North American convention, Christian convention back in the 1990s. But I think the story goes back much further than that to the days of World War II. John Blanchard, none of you know John's story, John was a serviceman uh, and he was uh, in basic training in Florida and uh, preparing to go overseas into World War II. And, and John was the kind of guy who was really shy, uh, didn't have a girlfriend in high school, uh, kind of actually wondered to himself at this point as he's headed to war, would he ever know love? <laughs> would he ever know love in his life? What was it going to look like? Would he, would he be killed in the war? And so he really had uh, some mixed feelings about, about that. And as he was on the base, one day he had a free afternoon during his training, and he went down to the PX, and when he got there, there had been a number of books donated by people to encourage the soldiers before they went off to war. And in a lot of the books, in the cover of the book, there would be a note written to the soldiers just thanking them for their service or what they were doing. Well, when, when John walked in and he got this book, he picked up a book to read, he liked it, he, he opened it up in the most immaculate penmanship. It said, donated by Miss Hollis Maynell, New York City, New York. And as he read the book, I mean, he read a note from her thanking him for his service, but she had written... On almost every page of the book, sometimes the things she wrote had to do with the book itself. She would comment on things that were happening in the book, but, but also as he went along, he read, she would have other things in there, just reflections about life. The story mentioned Paris, and she, she would muse about Paris, and I wonder if I'll ever go there. I wonder if it'll be the same after the war. And as he kind of did this, it was his first glimpse into the female mind, right? He, he kind of, although he's always shy and he didn't talk to a girl, he had this person, right, who was reading her words and it kind of spoke to him. And so as he's in basic training, he knew that there was really no chance she'd ever get the letter, but he decided that he would, he would send a thank you card to Miss Hollis Maynell, New York City, New York. And, and he knew the chances of her getting it were slim. But he wanted, he wanted her to know he appreciated what she had done in donating the book. Well, on his last week before he was shipped overseas, during mail call, he got a, he got a letter. And there he saw the, the front letter. It was this incredible penmanship again. And it, and it said, Hollis Maynell, New York City. And so he rapidly opened it. Boy, she was so appreciative of, of, the, of the thank you card he had sent. And, and she wrote some nice things in his card and told him that, he'd, you know, I'll be praying for you while you're overseas. And she 
gave him this invitation. Maybe we could be pen pals. Like, this is before the internet, right? And cell phones and all those things. So this was the way you communicated. And he thought, okay, right? Like, this is a good thing. And so he went off to war. Now, as he was serving uh, on that, uh, during World War II, he would write back and forth. And what started as, as pen pals kind of became friendship. And as the war continued, it actually moved towards a little bit of romance. In fact, it got to the point where he wrote Hollis a letter. He said, Hollis, he said, uh, a lot of my friends there, the girls that they like back home will send them a photograph of them. Would you send me a picture of yourself? Because I'd love to, to know what you look like. And he was a little shocked by her response. Her response was, well, if what we have is real, and, and it's what I think it is, what I look like is not going to matter. Now, of course, all of, of John's friends are like, oh, this is bad, John, this is bad. You know, this is a bad sign. But, but you know what? He so liked her letters that he kind of just didn't, he didn't let it bother him. And so as the war started to come to a close and John was coming back home, uh, he wrote to her and they arranged to meet at Grand Central Station in front of Brock's candy store. Now, he said, how will I know you and, and when you get there? And she said, well, you'll know me because... I'll be the one with a little, uh, little red rose and lapel. He said, that's what you want to look for. And so, of course, they set it up. They'd meet at 7 o'clock in front of Brock's. And, and he got to, the, to the can, this uh, candy store, and he got there about 6.45, and he's looking around for these, these, uh, this person with the rose and her lapel, and he doesn't see anyone. So, soon it's 6.55, 6.58. Then it's 7 o'clock. Now, at 7 o'clock... John sees the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. I mean, she is the picture of beauty to him. Her hair, the perfect shade. She has on a red dress. She is just eyes that are as blue as the ocean. Everything about her to him seems perfect. I mean, his heart skips a beat just looking at her, and then he realizes there's no rose on her lapel. Now, she sees that he's looking at her, and so as as she walks closer, she says to him, Welcome home, soldier. Buy a girl a cup of coffee. And man, he is really tempted to buy this girl a cup of coffee. But as he looks at her, just behind her, he sees someone with a rose on their lapel. Now, it's clear to him, his first, his heart does not skip a beat when he sees her. And she's been Miss Hollis Maynell for probably at least 15 years longer than he has been John Blanchard. She's a little older than him. And not at all what he was expecting or even hoping for. So now he faced a sort of test, a dilemma. But you know what? John didn't even look back at the girl in the red dress. He walked up to the woman with the roses and the lapel and said, Hi, I'm John Blanchard. It's nice to meet you, Hollis. Now, what she said next surprised him because she said, well, my name's not Hollis, and I don't know why this happened, but that girl in the red dress in front of me handed me this piece of paper and said, if you came and talked to me, I should give you this note. So she handed it to John, and John read it, and it was that same perfect penmanship he was so used to from Hollis Maynell. John, she wrote, you passed the test. I'm the girl in the red dress. Meet me at the cafe on the corner. Let's get to know each other. 
You know, we get tested in many ways. Some are tests of relationships, and relationships get tested from time to time. Sometimes we get tested in, in tests of our ethics or our morality, or our, we, we, we receive those kinds. Some are tests that we will be challenged with, with, with uh, unexpected things that come into our life, right? We, we're tested sometimes by uh, the situations of the day. One of our elders was sharing in our elders meeting about how everything that kind of could break had broken in a week, right? Like everything, he, he, first the AC went up upstairs in his uh, apartment, then it went out downstairs in his work area, right? Like everything just kind of fell apart at the same time. Had days like that? They kind of test us, right? It's like a test of our patience, of our, of our tenacity. How are we going to move through it? Sometimes the tests that we face are tests that are of our own making. Like we created the problem. Sometimes those tests come from sin, right? That can be a kind of challenge because sins have a way of finding us out. And, and then we, we have to struggle with that and deal with that. But sometimes tests and trials that we face have nothing to do with us at all. Just a reality of life. We didn't cause cancer to come into our life, but it comes in through to us or someone we care about. It's just a consequence of sin being in the world. It's, a, it's one of those things we had no say in it, but we have to face it. These are trials and difficulties that we face. The Bible talks a lot about different kinds of trials. Uh, we should expect that, that tests and trials will come into our life. It's smart for us not to ask the question, do I have a plan for a, a, a bad day? Uh, the, the way we should say it is, what will my plan be because the bad day is going to come? I know it sounds pessimistic, but it's true. Difficulties come into every life, every circumstance. And so the, what Jesus was trying to convey in Matthew 5, verse 45, when he talked to people, he said, listen, he said, the sun shines and the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Good people have bad days, and bad people have good days. It's just part of life. So God says, I'll be with you through all of it, and we're encouraged by that. There's another kind of trial that comes into life sometimes, and it's one that a lot of you have expressed in recent weeks and months that you feel. It's the kind of trial that exists when godly people live in an ungodly world. It's a trial. It's difficult. Because the things that you value are not the things the world values. And a lot of things that you believe that are really important to you, you believe they're truth, other people might laugh at, scoff at, make fun of. It's frustrating. This is a kind of trial that Christians have had to deal with for a long time. In fact, if we go back to the first century into our text today from the book of James, we'll see one person who faced some real challenges. Now, the author of James, we believe, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And he had seen Jesus resurrected and converted to faith after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When James comes to faith, though it's, it's complete, he quickly becomes a leader in the church in Jerusalem, and he has a tremendous role there as an elder in the church. But he faces two real trials, two real challenges. The first that he faces comes from within Judaism itself, right? This is the culture in Jerusalem that had killed Jesus. The Pharisees still hold great power. 
they have a, a real issue with James because they believe James is a blasphemer. They believe James is, is putting out a false narrative as a false teacher because James says the only way to God is through Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. That's his message. Well, Jesus doesn't fit in the model that has been prevalent in Judaism and in Jerusalem. They don't accept that. And so Jesus has become a stumbling block to them. And because James, the half-brother of Jesus, continues to call people towards Jesus and to say that Jesus is the Messiah, there are a lot of people upset with them, angry, frustrated. And like Saul, who becomes Paul, there are people who would even kill him for that. And indeed, he will be martyred for his faith before his story ends. He has pressure when he writes this letter from Jerusalem. He also has pressure from Rome. To the Romans, Christians create a different problem. They see them as troublemakers. They actually call Christians atheists because they don't believe in the, in the, in the Greek and Roman gods of Zeus and Apollo and Diana and Venus. They don't follow their gods. They are, they are anti the, the gods, so they call them atheists because they don't believe in their gods. Second, they call them cannibals because Christians talk about partaking in the body and blood of Jesus. And the Romans make fun of them for this. They, they, they think that in their private rituals, they eat people. That's what they say about the Christians, and so they really are disturbed by them. And lastly, and this is a big one, the Christians refuse to acknowledge Caesar as one of the gods. They won't worship him like a god. They won't acknowledge him like a god. They consider him just a mere man. And of course, that infuriates the Caesars. So Christians are facing a lot of pressure from the Romans and for James also from those Jews who are in Jerusalem. So when James writes these words, get it, he's under pressure. There are a lot of people around him that are putting some real pressure on him to conform to their will instead of to God's will. It's a test. But listen to what he says in verse 1. He opens his letter and he says, I'm James. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't serve Caesar. I serve God. And who is my Lord to my Hebrew brothers and sisters? It's Jesus. And he's the Christ, the Messiah. Like, he could not have offended the other two people more, two groups more, than if he had written it this way. Like, this is absolutely a statement. Here I am. This is what I believe. I won't back down. I will pass the test. I won't cave in. Now, the people he's writing this letter to understand trials in a big way. He writes this. He says, I'm writing this letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He's writing to his Jewish brothers and sisters who are not a stranger to trials. They've endured a lot of difficult things, and, and he knows they have. He knows that some of their trials have come at the hands of other leaders. Uh, some of them have come from being put in captivity and enslavement. Some of the reasons of, of their being scattered has to do with persecution, others with economy. But they've struggled. In fact, when he writes this, it's neat that he says the 12 tribes because really we only at that point in history know where two and a half of the tribes are. A lot of other tribes are really unknown where they've gone to and been dispersed to. So he's writing to a people that know what it is to have struggles. And then what he says next is mind-boggling. Read verse 2. Consider it 
Pure joy. That's an interesting construction. Pure joy meaning like the epitome of joy, the, the pinnacle of joy, the very best thing that joy can be. Consider it that whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, that doesn't resonate with us. Like trials and happiness and joy don't go together for most of us, right? I love the story that Charles Swindoll told about, about Chippy <laughs> the parakeet. You may know this story if you've read his book, but but Chippy, uh, there was a woman who goes into the pet store, right? And she wants a songbird. And when she walks in, Chippy is just singing up a storm. It's wonderful. And so, so she buys Chippy. And she takes him home. And sure enough, for the first three or four weeks, Chippy just sings like crazy. Well, it's time to clean out Chippy's cage. And what does she do? She takes the vacuum cleaner. And when she does to do the bottom, she sucks Chippy into the vacuum cleaner. Now, she's upset about that, so immediately she rips open the bag, and there's Chippy covered in dirt. So what does she do? She panics, and she shoves him under the sink and to wash off all the dirt on poor Chippy. Now Chippy's just taking a power washing in the sink, and he's all wet. And again, not thinking, she does what she does when she's all wet to dry her hair. She grabs her hair, hair dryer and blasts it with the hot air. Now, here's the real rub. After that happened, Chippy didn't sing much anymore. You wouldn't sing much either. The story goes, she took him back to the pet store and said, hey, he doesn't sing. And when she told the story, the guy's like, yeah, Chippy can stay with us. And allegedly, when the lady walked out, Chippy began to sing again. (laughs) I don't know. But I do know this, that, that trials can take the song right out of us. They don't make us feel like singing. But he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. So what's the essence of joy he thinks is in a trial? Well, for James, I think he's going to tell us that God's going to meet us there. And that it's in the trial that we learn a lot more about who God is and who we are. And that that's a good thing. And that it will strengthen us and make us stronger. And apparently that's worked for James, because he's already been through a lot of trials, and so he's telling us the voice of experience. Some of you have done this with your kids, Like, you look back in history of your own life to a time where maybe you were laid off from work and the finances were low, but you found a way to pull things together and to pay for the kids Christmas and whatever it was. You found a way to get through it. And you look back on that horrible time fondly. You look back on it and say, wow, we we really did something there. Like That was real and we did it. It's a source of pride, a source of joy. I think that's kind of what James is getting at here. Like, When you go through these hard times, they're going to seem really hard in the moment, but when they're over, you're going to look back on that and say, wow, God really was there with us through that. Listen to what he says. Consider it pure joys, brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind. And let's get this. The trials that he's talking about here really are trials that have to do with faith. Uh, Pressure on you to not believe what you want to believe. The pressure you feel being a Christian in an unchristian world, being a God follower in a world that increasingly doesn't believe in God. Those are the trials he's talking about. You know the testing of your faith will produce perseverance. And perseverance, when it finishes its work, it will, it will finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Not lacking anything. God's going to give you what you need to get through the trial. When we face a difficulty... 
we sometimes, we, we sometimes struggle in that, right? It's not easy to face those. Peter described facing a difficulty in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. He said this, For a while you may have to suffer trials and tests of all sorts, but this is so the true value of your faith may be discovered. It's worth more than gold, which is tested by fire. It's a powerful thing to say. You're going to learn something about yourself in the trial. You know, that goes back into the history of the Israelites. They, they learned a lot through their trials, more maybe from their trials than from their victories. And I say that because let's go back to that story of Joshua leading the people into the promised land. The first obstacle they had to face is the mighty Jericho. Remember that? The walled city. It may have been the most fortified city in the world at that time, and God just knocks it to the ground. It's tremendous. God takes care of the battle for them. And they win. It's a rout. I mean, they defeat the superpower in battle number one. They, they, are, they are victorious. Now, God says, you know, don't take the stuff from these people. Give it to the Lord as an offering. Don't, don't take their gold or silver. Leave that there for, for God. And most of the people get it right. But one guy named Achan and his family, they like secretly are like, hey, this is great. Let's take all this gold and silver. Let's take this stuff. And they think nobody noticed. And no one knows. And by all appearances, no one did except for one person, God. God knew. So the next thing that happens is they go up against this little tiny, little tiny town called Ai. I mean, it's just a little thing. Nothing like the superpower of Jericho. It's just tiny. And the army, they, they don't even send everybody there to go fight, but the people they send there, they get, the Israelites get destroyed. <laughs> like, they can't do anything right. This little tiny town just whoops them. They lose the battle so bad, it's horrible. And they come back, they're like, what just happened? This doesn't make any sense. And God's like, yeah, well, you know, let's get to the root of the problem here. You didn't do what I said. And sin has really caused this thing to happen to you. Yeah, when we face a trial or a temptation, we should probably do what Joshua had to do. We should say, okay. In this trial or in this struggle, is there something that I need to change in me that's not right right now? Because sometimes that's going to happen, right? Sometimes a trial doesn't show us the joyful part until first it shows us the part of us that needs to change. It shows us what needs to change in us. For the Israelites, they had to change some things. They had to change some things, and they did. And then after that, AI was nothing. Trials can be that way. I want to ask you that question. What might need to change in you as you face a trial? There's another kind of trial that happens, another kind of struggle. Sometimes God wants to show us that we're not alone, that we have other people. Elijah faced a, a, a struggle like that, right? The prophet Elijah thought he was the only one. He said, God, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. And God's like, Elijah, I have thousands more. You're not alone. Sometimes in a trial, that's what God wants us to see, not our sin, but our situation. He wants us to see we're not, you're not alone in this. You have brothers and sisters who are going to stand with you in the struggle. I'm with you, and the people are with you. You're together. And some struggles will push us to do something we don't like to do. It may push us to have to ask for help. That's hard. That's humbling. But God says that's okay. Sometimes we need the help of someone else to pick us up and help carry us through. That's part of what the church is for. Sometimes our struggles... Show us that we need the help of others. The Bible says a cord of three strands is not easily, it's not easily broken. Now, there are other stories in the Bible that I find interesting about 
where the people have to learn that it's not based on the weapons of the world that we have victories or the, the things that we have victories, but it's based on the weapons of heaven, the, the things of God. That's why in Ephesians 6, we have that great treatise from Paul. He says, listen, you're in a spiritual struggle with the devil. And if you're going to take your stand against the devil, you're going to have to have your, your feet shod. You're going to have to have the Bible memorized. You're going to have to take up the shield of faith. You're going to take up the sword of, of, of God's spirit and of the word. You're going to have to, to arm yourself in a way. Let God help prepare you for things. Don't go out and try to fight all these things on your own. Do it with the help of God. Then you'll succeed. There's a great phrase, apart from him, Jesus. We read this, apart from him, we can do nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But with him, wow, what we can accomplish with him. Trials. Trials. We read these words in James later in verse 12. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. There is something good, valuable, that comes from standing through the, the trial, from passing through the fire. I like something that we read in 1 Corinthians. Paul, when he writes the Corinthians letter, he tells the people this passage, he says, the fire will test the quality of each person's works. It'll test the quality of the works that we've done. And he says in that passage, right, if, if what we've done endures, then it's like gold, silver, precious stones. He says the fire reveals something about who we are. And sometimes it reveals really great stuff. That's a, a concept that's not always easy for us to see, but but it does exist. Even in our world, we can see examples of where the fire reveals really valuable stuff. Have you heard about the Galeras volcano in Colombia? You heard this story? Maybe you don't know this volcano. This volcano belches out of itself $11 million worth of gold every single year. It's a volcano. Deep in the earth, in the bowels of the earth, they say there's a vein of gold under that volcano that must be at least 10 feet wide. And that gold gets mixed in with everything else, heated and superheated, and then spewed. Some of it comes out as fine particles that just drift to the ground. I know you're thinking, I'm going to Columbia, I gotta go to Glarus. It's a national park, it's protected. The only people who ever get to go down there are, are scientists in special gear because of the gases and the temperature and the fact that it's one of the most volatile volcanoes in the world. It erupts without prediction. And when it does, sometimes it just belches out gold nuggets. Wow. Some of you have the first part down. We're unpredictable and we're fiery, but are we, are we bringing out gold or something else? That's the question about the test in a trial, isn't it? That's the question. What's this difficulty going to reveal in me about God? Here's the beauty of James. We know that James will be faithful all the way to death. His life is gold. He showed it for what it was, a thing of beauty that God was using him to accomplish. Indeed, think of this. Because James stood the test under a time of fire and trial, today, here, almost 2,000 years later, we are encouraged by his words. Still, they live on. But James isn't unique. 
when we're under pressure and we're in the fire and life is hard and we don't lose our faith and we don't renounce God, we continue to, to shine brightly and brilliantly with the love of Christ in our world, we're producing something valuable that lives on and has value even after we're gone, just like James. But it's not easy. <laughs> I know it's not easy. Man, you, you and I both, right? We see the posts on our Facebook feeds and social media feeds. We see the things that are out there, and we, we shake our heads. Like, how could this world be so off base? How could people miss it so bad? And then you read the things, and some people look at Christians, and they say the same thing about us. Man, how could those Christians be so off base? How could they miss it so bad? And sometimes when we're not at our best, we do not produce gold, silver, or precious stones. Like, we put stuff out there that's not, it's, like, hopefully you look at it and think, I'm going to take that down. I should never have said that, right? Because we do some of that. That doesn't help anything. doesn't help anything. No, what helps is when even under pressure, people see God and they see Jesus in us. That's what helps. That's what it means to stand the test in the fire. Don't miss it. James was not talking about getting a, a chocolate mocha latte when you ordered the pumpkin spice at, at the, the local coffee shop. He's talking about real struggles when people say you're crazy for believing in God or in Jesus. He's talking about being in a world where people don't value what you value. But still keep the faith and don't let other people throw you off of it. Amen. Because it matters. And in the middle of all that, still hold out hope for others. Yeah. Remember Jesus, pray for those who persecute you. Remember Jesus at the cross, nail him to the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's our example. Well, it's possible that you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet. A person came to me not long ago who was facing some trials and some difficulties, and as we got to talking, one of the things that really came out was this person just doesn't have a relationship with God. And I said, I, man, you know, we got to start at the beginning because you're not, I mean, I, I can't imagine facing life without God's help. I can't even imagine it. Talk about hopeless and frustrating. Is that your circumstance? We'll start having some victories Instead of all defeats, make a connection with God. Make Jesus Christ your Lord and your Savior. It might be there's something else going on today. When we talk about trials, even James said there's trials of many kinds, and I don't know which kind you're going through, but God does. And I know this, even if you feel alone, you're not. So when you face a difficulty in trial, what do we do? We should do exactly what King Hezekiah did when he faced a struggle. He took the struggle immediately before the Lord. It says he laid it out before God. He laid the problem out before God. He told him exactly what was happening. He asked for God's help. I don't know what challenges you face, but let me encourage you today in this time of prayer, lay it out before God. And say, okay, God, I surrender. <laughs> I can't solve it. I need your help. Maybe I need spiritual help. Maybe I need the help of brothers and sisters. Or maybe I'm losing this battle because there's some stuff in my life that I get rid of. I'm laying it all out. Show me what needs to change in me so that I can be the person you want me to be in this trial and discover this pure joy James talked about. This good thing that comes out of this bad thing I'm going through. 
If you've never made Christ your Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do it as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation.